Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin in prayer. If we could all please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare without condemnation, with confidence, to call upon Thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. In an honor of the Mother of God, who is holy, Dormition, we celebrate tomorrow with the prayers of the Most Holy Mother of God, O Christ our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. Mark once received his Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Regis University in Denver, Colorado, and continued his graduate studies at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum in Rome, where he is finishing, currently finishing his doctoral dissertation. It's good to have uh, Professor Wunsch back with us. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks for wel uh, welcoming uh, me back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. I've always had a, a very enjoyable time with you, and, and I expect to have another one today. If you look around you, okay, you're surrounded uh, by, by extraordinary people involved in an extraordinary activity. I mean, not only are the people you see you know, to your left, to your right, some of the most intelligent, the best and brightest, and most beautiful people in Northern Virginia, uh, but you also have something else in common, okay? something else, a motivation that's held in common with the others in this room, and with the angels, with the saints, okay? the fathers of our faith, uh, and even our Jewish ancestors. And I'm thinking in particular of King Solomon. Now, I'm a philosopher by trade, my knowledge of the scriptures can be a little hazy at times, but I seem to remember uh, uh, him uh, being granted a, a request by God. Okay? God asked, uh, he asked, he asked, uh, God asked him what, what he wanted. And, and does anyone remember what, what, what he asked for from God? For wisdom, for wisdom. Now we are, as this title of, of our lecture series uh, states, seeking wisdom. Okay? And so in this activity, you hold much in common okay, with not only the best and brightest in Northern Virginia, okay, and most beautiful, okay, uh, but also uh, our, our forefathers in, in the faith, okay, and, and many saints, the angels even themselves. Okay. Uh, now, what is wisdom? Okay, now that's, that's the question that we're going to look at in, in a few minutes. Okay. And so part of our agenda today okay, will be, first of all, 
okay, uh, to introduce you to the person of Boethius, okay, because the flyer stated, seeking wisdom, okay, uh, the uh, Boethius and the birth of Christian philosophy. Now, I'm assuming that title, at least the second half of it, might not have grabbed you like the seeking wisdom part of it. And so today I'm going to explain how it is that Boethius can assist you today, okay, and possibly even the rest of your life, in your pursuit of wisdom. So you'll be introduced to the person Boethius. We're going to discuss why his thought is still relevant today. Why it matters to you and to me in Annandale, Virginia, okay, on August the 14th, 2010. Uh, it's a good day, by the way. It's, it's the uh, memorial of Maximilian Mary Colby, uh, who's my confirmation saint, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a happy occasion. Anyway, and so why is it still relevant? Okay, we'll look at that question. We'll discuss what wisdom is, the various distinctions, because it's bantered about uh, in, in, in society today, uh, in the church today, uh, philosophers speak about wisdom. Well, what exactly is it? And then we're going to look at how Boethius encounters wisdom in a personal way in his consolation of philosophy. Okay? So that's, that's what we're going to do. That's our agenda. Okay? Now, let me uh, uh, introduce to you then a little bit of the person of Boethius. Now, it's part of the mission of the Institute of Catholic Culture, as Sabatino just mentioned, to give you a Catholic education. And that means universal. Okay? Now, we all know our faith to some degree. Okay? Most of us, at least in our better moments, uh, especially when we're not in trouble with our little ones, uh, uh, or you know, pay attention to what the priest says at Mass. And, and we are attentive, and we might even do some extra scripture reading, uh, mental prayer, and the like outside of, uh, outside of the Mass. And, uh, uh, but yet, our, our knowledge of our faith, the theological and philosophical foundations, of, of our faith is often weak. And that's where the Institute of Catholic Culture comes in and, and, and where it can tell you about these individuals like Blessed Anicius Manlius Severinus Boethius, the great man. Okay, and that's a great name. Especially the manliest part. I thought that would be a good name for my next son. You know. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it's a wonderful name and a wonderful man that we're going to introduce you to. Okay. Now, who is this man? Who is Boethius? Uh, now, Boethius stands uh, on the cusp of, of a great cataclysmic uh, change in human history. Okay, as you see here, uh, he was born in 480 in Italy. Okay. And the classical world is coming to an end. Okay. Rome fell in 410. St. Augustine, the, the great Western father of our church, he died in 430 uh, with barbarians literally at the gates of his sea in Hippo in northern Africa. Now, another 50 years later, we find Boethius born into a very different world even than the world uh, that St. That Augustine uh, grew up in. Uh, we have the Ostrogoths uh, of, of a Germanic origin uh, who have taken over Italy, okay, uh, the new emperor, the emperor Theodoric, is an Ostrogoth, and he's also Arian. And what that means is he's not in union with what it means to be an Orthodox Catholic. Now, Boethius is born into this situation. We see the vestiges of the wisdom of the Greeks. 
collapsing at his feet. Okay? And he is going to be a bridge, however. Okay? One of the last men in this time period to be given a classical education. He went to study in Athens. He's one of the last people, really, of, of his time to have contact with Greek philosophy. And he will be one of the primary bridges from the classical world through to the medieval world. He'll translate okay, uh, much of the works of Aristotle and Plato. An enormous affinity for Plato and, and also Aristotle. He thought their doctrine uh, was, was complementary and, and very compatible. And he and his work of translation uh, enabled some of the works of Aristotle, in particular his logic, to survive throughout the Middle Ages. And if it wasn't for his work, uh, uh, the, the, the 700 years of human history would be without the great wisdom of the Greeks. But here we find an interesting person. Okay? He is a philosopher. Okay? So he, unlike uh, Solomon, or he sought wisdom uh, in, in a different way. Okay? So, so we find, through the, the, the God of Revelation, uh, a path to wisdom. But there is another alternative path that is, again, complementary with the path of, of uh, those who pursue truth via revelation, and that is the path via reason. And uh, the path had been laid out before him by the great thinkers, Aristotle, Plato, and the like. And he saw it as his mission to transmit as much of their thought as possible to the Latin-speaking world. Okay? This was his mission, and sadly, uh, uh, he died before he could accomplish it. He wanted to translate the whole corpus of, of Aristotle and Plato into Latin, but sadly he died. Now, he died at the hands of his own emperor. He worked for the emperor, but was accused of high treason and put to death okay, in Pavia, which is in northern Italy, in 424 or 425 A.D. Oh, 525, sorry. So that, that is uh, the life and the times, in some, to some extent, of Boethius. Now, what is unique about him as well is within his person, we find seamlessly, and this is, this is a, 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 new, a new thing, a great knowledge of philosophical wisdom on one hand, and a, and, a, and a developed knowledge of Catholic doctrine on the other. And so in the person of Boethius, uh, we see him pursuing wisdom with both wings, the wing of faith and the wing of reason. Okay, and this is what makes him such an example to us of how it is that we should proceed in our desire to become wise. Okay? Now, there's, there's much other details I could give about his biography. But now I want to get into the discussion of what this wisdom really is okay? and how it relates to us in our time. Now, first, let's begin with the question of its relevance. Okay? Now, Boethius asks all the important questions, okay? and, and we'll find that in the text that we're going to read in common today, and that, you know, I, I hopefully, if, 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 you know, if I succeed at all, some of you might even go out and buy a copy of this, The Consolation of Philosophy. 
He asks in this work the most fundamental questions. Okay? And not only that, he provides answers to them. Okay? Now, I know the model of Harvard is called Veritas. Okay, truth, which is kind of ironic. And actually, the, 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 the original title, actually the, 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 their motto, it actually is, is the truth for Christ in the church. Okay, is what that title used to be. Okay. Now, today, I remember uh, I read a, a lecture of, of the, uh, I think it's, it's um, the chancellor there. And the chancellor mentioned that what that means, truth, the motto of Harvard, is that we're always seeking truth. Okay? Now that's a noble ambition, and it's something that Boethius would have sought as well. But there is the, the presumption that it's unattainable. Okay? Well, Boethius is able to affirm something that's very delicate. Both that truth is knowable, and that we can grow in our knowledge of the truth. Okay? And this is something that we will come back to later. So why he's relevant is he not only asks the questions that we all ask, but he gives answers. And answers to important questions that you and I might ask of ourselves today. Who am I? Okay. Am I made for some purpose? What does it mean to be happy? In what good is happiness to be discovered? Is there a God? Uh, is there a good God who governs the world? And then even more difficult questions. If there is a good God who governs the world, why is it that the evil seem to prosper? And the good are trampled underfoot by the wicked. Good question. A question that's highly relevant. If God is good and governs, is in control of the world, why is it that evil people seem to be blessed and move from uh, grace unto grace, while those people who do good receive evil precisely for doing good? It's a very difficult question, but he provides an answer. And finally, and these last two questions we'll deal with in, in our lecture next time. If God knows what we're going to do, God knows his divine foreknowledge. He knows everything, including what is future to us. God knows where we're going to lunch. God knows when we're going to die. God knows everything we will ever do. If that is the case, then how are we free? Okay, we affirm that to be a rational animal is to have freedom. And without freedom, prayers of petition, our, our actions, justice, punishment are meaningless. And yet, we can't deny that God's knowledge is less than it is. He's omniscient, and, he's, and he knows everything. So how is it, if he knows everything, and knows where everything's going to go, uh, that he is able to punish the wicked for their deeds, because they freely chose them? Or is it that he has been predetermined to punish people uh, for their wickedness, which seems to, to not be so benevolent on God's part? 
a wickedness that they cannot avoid. Now, these are questions that he asks, and questions that he provides answers to in this work. And these answers were satisfactory uh, for uh, the medieval world, and I think many of them will be satisfactory to you today. This work was one of the most widely read works throughout the Middle Ages. Okay, you know, you know, we have kings, King Alfred, even the first Queen Elizabeth made a translation of this book into English. Uh, we have Chaucer working on a translation of this work into English. It's fascinating from a literary perspective. It's fascinating from a philosophical perspective. And today we are going to look at what makes it so timeless and fascinating. Okay. So that is why I think some of what Boethius is going to say will be relevant to you. Not only is he historically important as a conduit, as someone who assisted in the transmission of Greek wisdom to the Christian world, but he's also significant for providing answers, maybe even true answers, to the most fundamental questions that each one of us has. And we're going to look at how he, the conclusions he comes to in a minute. Now, all this talk about seeking wisdom uh, begs the question, what is it? What is wisdom? And, and it's a little bit confusing, okay? I, I admit, because it, it, the, a clear definition isn't so easy uh, to discover. We find it defined in different ways, uh, in different sources. Uh, if you look it up online, okay, and this is something people do these days. I, I, I did a Google search and Googled wisdom, and, and this is what, what you get. Now, it's interesting to see what's common between these definitions, and a definition we'll look at later of uh, definitions of St. Thomas Aquinas and, and how Boethius himself defines it. They define wisdom as follows. Okay, here is from Wikipedia, uh, the great font of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, wisdom is a deep understanding. Actually, I don't like how the sentence is even constructed, but whatever. Anyway, wisdom is a deep understanding and realizing of people, things, events, or situations, resulting in the ability to choose or act consistently in such a way, in such a way that you may produce the optimum results with a minimum of time and energy. Okay, it's, it's a mouthful, isn't it? It's a mouthful. Good for you. Yeah, at least they, they gave it a run, you know? Okay, well, let's, let's focus on a few things. A deep understanding, okay, I think that actually is relevant. It's a deep understanding. Okay? It's not so much where is the nearest McDonald's, okay, or what color are my shoes, okay? But it's something deep. It's not just knowledge or data. Simple facts about trivial matters, but it's knowledge about deep matters or weighty considerations. And, and I think to some extent that is getting toward what, what's going on with wisdom. And yet there is this obvious thrust towards the practical, towards expediently accomplishing some task. And this also is a, a, a part of the definition that, that seems to resonate in the Catholic tradition, okay, and in the tradition even of, of sacred scripture, is that it does involve acting rightly, okay, wisely choosing which way to go. 
Okay, uh, it seems that's something we all want to do, and that you need a modicum of wisdom to be able to accomplish that. Okay, so uh, let, let's then take a look then at how we find wisdom uh, in our tradition. <clears throat> now we see it present 222 times in Scripture. Okay, in the Old and New Testaments, uh, we we find it referred to in Proverbs and the Psalms, especially. Uh, and even personified in the feminine. Okay, it was very interesting. And that's particularly interesting for what Boethius does a little bit later. Okay, uh, we've seen its connection to the King Solomon, which certainly involved him desiring uh, the wisdom to rightly order his kingdom. And so again, there is a kind of practical consideration. Uh, that, that comes into play when we want to define wisdom properly. Of course, you're familiar with the famous adage that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, and here we're getting closer to, to, to uh, I think, a proper understanding. Understanding that includes God and a fear of God. Uh, a putting of God first, okay, and, and, and his mind first in our decision making. Okay, that seems to come, uh, come out through a reading of the Old Testament. Now, let's see what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, is a great scholastic thinker. Uh, he came on the scene. Uh, really, there's almost an equal stretch of time between the death of Boethius and the birth of, of St. Thomas and St. Thomas in our time. Uh, there's a little bit longer now, but St. Thomas was born in 12. Uh, 24, uh, 25, died in 1274, and he's the great universal doctor of our faith. He makes a great distinction here, okay, and an important distinction between natural wisdom and supernatural wisdom. Natural wisdom refers to the wisdom of the philosophers. Supernatural wisdom is is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now what does he have to say then? Now in his discussion of virtue, and does anyone remember what a virtue is? A good habit, a habit, it's a good habit, you know, vice is a bad habit. And virtues can be subdivided into moral and intellectual. Moral virtues, uh, to, to put it in a kind of crude way, deal with how we act. Intellectual virtues deal with how we think. Okay. How we pursue truth, uh, that's what we do with the intellectual virtues. How we pursue the good uh, uh, relates to the moral virtues. Now, the moral virtues can be said to be the cardinal virtues, and you all know what they are. Okay. We also find the intellectual virtues are, are not, not quite as, as, they're not discussed quite as much. But among them, we find wisdom, science, and understanding. Now, these are virtues that any person, any rational animal, can attain. And the first of the intellectual virtues is wisdom. That will be distinguished, then, from supernatural wisdom. But let's take a look at what he says about wisdom itself. He says, wisdom is the knowledge of conclusions through their highest causes. So again, wisdom is the knowledge of conclusions through their highest causes. 
Thus philosophy, now I'm not quoting, but, but this is a summary. Thus philosophy, and in particular metaphysics, okay, which is the highest branch of philosophy, uh, is properly designated as wisdom. Okay. It's knowledge of the highest causes. Okay. Since it considers truth, Okay, okay. Uh, of high, thus, philosophy, in particular metaphysics, is properly distinguished, designated as wisdom. Since it considers truth of the natural order, which means philosophy, according to its highest principles. Now, this is interesting how it's compared to science. Science is the knowledge of conclusions acquired by demonstration through causes or principles which are final in one class or another. And then he goes on to say, thus there are different sciences, mathematics, physics, etc., but only one wisdom, the supreme judge of all. Now, now what can we make of all that? Well, wisdom, again, here he's saying something that Wikipedia was saying. Okay? It deals with the highest causes. Now, now how, how does this look? Well, take even a, a, a given uh, uh, science. Okay, even an art of some kind. The art of uh, using a computer, okay, or, or, or the use of a computer. Well, we all know how to strike the right keys in order to type legibly. Okay? And yet, someone has a higher knowledge of computers who knows how to fix them. And, and these are the individuals we go to when we have a problem. They have a deeper and more penetrating knowledge of the computer than we do. But there are many sciences okay, uh, out there. But wisdom actually encompasses them all. Okay? It orders all knowledge whatsoever. And thus the person who is wise understands the principles that govern all knowledge. And here we're getting very close to the heart of what it means to be wise. To have knowledge of the highest things. In particular will be knowledge of the highest thing, and that is God. And in the Summa, when he's discussing the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the gift of wisdom, uh, we hear him discuss uh, wisdom in this light. It belongs to wisdom to consider the highest cause. By means of that cause, we are able to form a most certain judgment about other causes. And according thereto, all things should be set in order. Okay, and this is a beautiful line that, that we'll reflect on a bit uh, before we dive into the, 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 the text of Boethius. Again, it belongs to wisdom to consider the highest cause. By means of that cause, we are able to form a most certain judgment about other causes, and according thereto, all things should be set in order. Okay? So God is ultimately the highest cause and explanation of all that is. He is the origin and the end of all that he has made. And so to be knowledgeable ultimately about God is to be wise. But how then does this relate to the other part of our understanding of wisdom, which involves acting rightly, 
Well, let, let me ask you this, okay? If we know God as the highest cause, that from which everything comes, and that to which we are going, okay? He is, in other words, the end that we are ultimately seeking. If we know Him to be that, the origin and end of all things, does that not change how we act? Think about it, okay? The end is said in philosophy to dictate the means. Okay, so let's say your end is to get here this morning. That will dictate every decision you made. I'm going to get up. I'm going to set the alarm so I won't sleep in. Uh, how do I explain the fact that you're getting in your car? Because you have an end to which you are going. Okay, go if, I, if I tried to explain why you got in your car this morning, and I did some investigative research, I would find out that it was because you were going to St. Michael's in Annandale to hear a talk on Boethius. So the end dictates how we act. Okay, and the various means that we choose in order to get to our end. Uh, think about it. Uh, this is the case with everything. An end is like a goal. And isn't it true that at the beginning of every project, you establish goals for yourself? And those goals dictate everything you do on a daily basis in order to attain that end. Okay? And so it's the case that the end of things, Okay, dictates the means, the means by which we proceed to our end. And here we find the connection with the knowing of the highest cause and activity. If we know God as our end, then, and only then, Thomas would hold, can we act rightly. Because we have to know where we're going. But once we know where we're going, then we can say, ah, I'm made for God. And if you have knowledge of what God and what he desires of man and his law, etc., then we can make those necessary choices that will lead us to him as our end. And so the wise man then knows the highest cause. He knows God. And ultimately in knowing God, then is able to act rightly and know the ways in which he ought to respond in order that he may return to God. Okay, and, and there we find the connection of wisdom with a simple knowledge of God, and then also with our decision-making, making good decisions, in order that we might return to God, who is our origin and end. Okay? Now, in this pursuit, we have uh, two different means, okay? ultimately. And one would be via what God has revealed, which is supernatural wisdom. And the other is our natural wisdom. Wisdom that can be attained by way of our reason. This is the reason of the philosophers. The philosopher okay, pursues truth by way of their reason, without the aid of revelation. And I know in previous talks, uh, I've, I've done a bunch of diagrams and talked about this distinction at length. And so I'll give a, a very, very, very cursory summary here. But there are two means that we pursue this end, via reason and via our faith. 
they both ultimately lead us to wisdom itself, which is God. But we can pursue God via natural wisdom, the wisdom of the philosophers, the truth they have to say about reality, and the higher truth that is complementary to natural wisdom, that is given to us by uh, uh, God's revelation. God revealing, which means pulling back, okay, the curtain and revealing something of himself. Okay, so we find here the complementary spheres of theology and philosophy. Okay, and these two means of pursuing wisdom. Okay, there's an overlapping section because some of what the philosopher will affirm, as we'll see in Boethius, is also revealed. By philosophy, he thinks he's discovered God and has discovered uh, his existence and how to act in such a way that he may return to God. And, and yet, there's more knowledge about God that goes beyond his existence that philosophy cannot show us. And so for that, we have the supernatural gift of wisdom that takes us above and beyond okay, uh, the wisdom of philosophy. But what's interesting is in Boethius, we find these two means, the two ways in which we can pursue wisdom, existing in a seamless way. Okay? And, and Thomas even himself said that as grace builds on nature, so too does theology build upon our natural knowledge. And so let's take a look at Boethius, okay? who gives us the right kind of natural knowledge that is fitting as a, as, 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 as a foundation for God's supernatural revelation to be set. And so, without further ado, then, let's take a look at the wisdom of Boethius, who is both philosopher and theologian, but who, in this phenomenal work, pursues wisdom primarily via philosophy. And let's see how philosophy can answer these fundamental questions in a way that will both uh, will, will support and undergird, as I mentioned, our faith. So let's take a look then at the text before us. Now, the Constellation of Philosophy is a beautiful work, from a literary perspective and from a philosophical perspective. And what's so interesting about it is that, as you see even in the quotes that I gave you, it uses both prose and verse interchangeably. Okay, so sometimes he's writing poetry. And his poetry inspired Dante and some of the greatest poets of all time. And then in the prose section, okay, he, he writes philosophical arguments. And they, they come to us in, in, interchangeably. Now, what's so interesting about this is we hear all this kind of heady talk, and maybe not everything that I mentioned is, is, is totally sunk in, and Boethius realizes that it's difficult to just deal with all these speculative matters if they're not tangible or real or personal. And so what does he do here? Well, he prays for wisdom, and wisdom visits him in jail. He's waiting his execution. He's trying uh, uh, to deal with the sadness of losing his status as a counsel for the emperor. 
being deprived of his home, being sentenced to death unjustly. And he turns in his moment of anguish to to, to wisdom itself, and wisdom appears in the personified form of lady philosophy. And she consoles him and helps him leave his state of melancholy and arrive at a kind of peace and security and a tranquil state that he will arrive at, arrive at by the end of this work. Now what's so beautiful about this is, is what it's fundamentally saying is that philosophy is a healer or the truth, if you look at truth in a general sense, is a healer. It actually heals you and gives you joy, peace, and tranquility of spirit. And this is a fascinating thing. Philosophy is personified as a doctor, and Boethius is the patient. And so let's take a look then at the text. We find in the very opening lines... a beautiful verse that summarizes his condition. The condition he's in in jail. And we can think of others who have been persecuted unjustly. We think of of the great philosopher Socrates. Uh, We think of the great believer, uh, St. Thomas More. Uh, And and here, Boethius, in his anguish, uh, communicates the, the, the first verse here. Okay, now I'd have you read, and, and maybe some of you can read it more dramatically than I, uh, but because I'm the one at the microphone, I think it's probably best that I do it. Okay. <clears throat> I, who once wrote songs with joyful zeal, am driven by grief to enter weeping mode. See the muses, cheeks all torn dictate, and wet my face with Eliac verse. No tear could discourage them at last from coming with me on my way. They were the glory of my happy youth, and still they comfort me in hapless age. Old age came suddenly by suffering sped, and grief then bade her government begin. And my hair untimely, uh, white that should say, upon my head, and I, a worn-out bone bag hung with flesh. That's great, 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 great description. Yeah, and, that's, and that's even better in the Latin. You know? It's a good translation, though. You know? and, and, and it goes on to say, okay, I, I wish I could read all of these, but I can't. Yeah, Foolish the friends who called me happy then, for falling shows a man stood insecure. Now, what is he getting at? Well, first of all, he's just complaining. Okay, so we find Boethius complaining about his life and his condition. Now, the muses who are consoling them are the muses of fortune, who we'll meet later. Fortune is Lady Fortune. Uh, basically governs all those goods that we seek that are temporal and fleeting. Okay, so fortune governs all of those goods that we, that we seek after. Wealth, fame, office, that are good in themselves, but fleeting. Now, her muses uh, uh, kind of encourage him in his sadness. And she wants him to snap out of it. And to be jarred 
from this state of melancholy. Okay? With the following, uh, uh, with the following words, we'll see how she accomplishes this. And in the midst of it, we get a great description of philosophy itself. While I was quietly thinking these thoughts over to myself, and giving vent to my sorrow with the help of my pen, I became aware of a woman standing over me. She was of awe-inspiring appearance, her eyes burning and keen beyond the usual power of men. Okay, she has a penetrating glance. She was full of years, so full of years that I could hardly think of her as of my own generation. And yet she possessed a vivid color, an undiminished vigor. Okay, so she's both, as we'll see, new and ancient. It was difficult to be sure of her height, for sometimes she was of average human size, while at other times she seemed to touch the very sky with the top of her head. And when she lifted herself even higher, she pierced it and was lost to human sight. Her clothes were made of imperishable material, of the finest thread woven with the most delicate skill. Later she told me that she made them with her own hands. You know, of, of course, insinuating that we do not make truth, okay, but truth simply is and is not the fruit of our own making. Their splendor, however, was obscured by a kind of film as of long neglect. And here, philosophy has been neglected. And at the time of Boethius, it had been neglected. Okay. And like statues covered in dust. On the bottom hem could be read the embroidered Greek letter uh, pi. And on the top, the Greek letter theta. Between the two, a ladder of steps rose from the lower to the higher. Her dress had been torn by the hands of marauders who had carried off such pieces as he could get. There were some books in, in her right hand, and in her left hand she held a scepter, of course signifying her power and authority. So what we find here, even in the, in the attire of her, from, is, is a division and articulation of what philosophy is. Philosophy is identified with the truth. And the truth is trans-epical and transcultural. It is timeless and perennial. Okay, without, uh, uh, without, it's not culturally contingent. It's, it's not temporally confined. And, and yet, it's, it's complex. Okay, it has different distinctions and divisions within it. The theta represents theology, uh, natural philosophy, and mathematics. So three of the speculative or theoretical branches of philosophy. Okay, okay so I, I just want to step back for a moment as, as you know, we've kind of had a chance for all the ideas to kind of leave our head. And, uh, and, and let's try to grab a, a few things and bring them back down. I just want to make sure a few things are clear. Now, I've, I've given talks here before. And I've articulated a few things that, that I know are clear, and so it might be a little bit of repetition for those who have heard it, but that can be a good thing. You know? I find actually knowledge, uh, learning, is uh, a lot more like painting a fence than building a brick wall. Because okay? uh, you know, if, you, you know, if you build a brick wall, you, know, okay, you, you, you put a brick down, you go to get another one, you put it on top of the brick you've, you've previously laid, 
Learning's not like that. You put a brick down, you go to get another one, you come back, and the other one's gone. Okay, so, so like, you, you forget stuff. Learning is more like painting a fence. Okay, you, you, you lay on one coat, a primer, and another coat, and another coat, you know, and, and slowly things begin to stick. And, and you build up an edifice here of, 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 uh, that's, that's suitable to, to retain or acquire additional information. Okay? Now, uh, I want us to be clear about the distinctions then. Okay, the distinction between supernatural wisdom and natural wisdom. Because we'll see Boethius gives us a flood of beautiful details about how natural wisdom can lead us to high truths. And even the truth about God and his existence. And yet, it is superseded by supernatural wisdom that is given by God himself. Now, now, how do these relate? What's going on here? Let, let's just review a few basic principles. Now, what is philosophy? Philosophy is, to put it in a very simplistic form, <clears throat> the study of that which can be known through the natural light of human reason. Okay, so anything that you can know about reality without God's help, okay, is a part of philosophy. Now, we can know a lot about reality. Okay? I, I can know, ultimately, even about God, even from my knowledge of things he's placed here. Okay? So in seeing the life of men, the, the, the fact that things are fleeting, the fact that nothing exists by its own nature, but has to receive its existence from something else, even philosophers have come to the conclusion that there must be something that doesn't receive its existence, or else this chain of receiving existence would go on forever. And so finally, there must be something that is existence, a being who is the origin of all that is, and, and is good and omnipotent. And philosophers have come up, even with ancient philosophers, with this conclusion. And yet, this philosophical knowledge, which is high and makes man wise, is superseded by the knowledge God gives to us of himself and his inner life. We have this by faith and by way of God's revelation. We know, and Thomas will affirm, St. Thomas will affirm, that it's only by faith and God's revelation that we know that God is three persons. That we know that Jesus is Lord. You can make arguments that make it reasonable. Like C.S. Lewis, who says he's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. You can make reasonable that conclusion. That the man who walked the earth was both man and God. And yet you need faith for it. And you need supernatural revelation to assist you. The knowledge that God, the one God, is three persons, again, is something we need faith for. So it takes us, it's a wisdom that even takes us beyond. But... Theology, which is the study of what has been revealed by God, and which we know by faith, also sometimes you know, reveals things that we can know naturally. Like in the Ten Commandments, it says you know, that murder is wrong. Okay? But also natural knowledge can show that murder is wrong. Uh, there's, there's thinkers like Plato who have said that the soul of man is immortal. And yet, we also know by way of scriptures that the soul of man is immortal. Okay? And yet, there are some truths that we can only know by way of God's revelation. And these are called the articles of faith. 
which St. Thomas says, cannot be demonstrated. And yet we can make them reasonable. And this is the great use that philosophy has in evangelization. Okay, When you're evangelizing, you, you find points of connection with people that you're talking to. So if someone believes the fullness of the truth is articulated by the Catholic Church, you can refer back to the magisterium when you disagree. When you meet a Protestant who doesn't believe in the church, you can show him at least how what the church says is intelligible and maybe consistent with the scriptures that you both uh, agree are the infallible source of truth. Uh, you can also have the point of connection with, with, with our, our Jewish brothers and sisters by way of the Old Testament. But what happens if someone doesn't assent to, doesn't believe in the revealed God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What do you do? Well, you can approach them by way of philosophy and show them that there is, there are answers to these deep questions. And they can be shown by way of reason alone. And then, if someone accepts the truth of these propositions, then they might be open to the higher truths as well. And that's why I liken philosophy to the, the, the plowing, the tilling of the field, so that the seed of revelation can be sown. You need a good foundation for God's word to be sown. That is philosophy, and that philosophy is communicated to us in this work by an individual who also believed, as we do, but found philosophy to be an enormously, enormously helpful assistant in his pursuit of wisdom. Okay, now with that, that, that little review... Uh, we still have 14 minutes to discuss these 29 quotes. Right. <clears throat> yeah, let's, let's see if I get. I've been working on my speed reading. You know, let's see how it goes. You know. Now, unfortunately, because of this time constraint, I'm not going to be able to go into all the details here. But we'll go into some. So we get from this opening introduction that philosophy is ancient and new. Truth is accessible to man today. You can know truths about reality. And when you know truths about reality, you grow in wisdom and you encounter philosophy in some sense. But they're also ancient and timeless. Whereas we pass away the truth, wisdom itself does not. Okay, we learn a lot about her. Even from her garments, and I wish I could go into more of this, Boethius distinguishes the division in philosophy itself. So we have the highest knowledge is supernatural theology, but in philosophy, we have knowledge of truth, uh, ultimately he calls a natural theology. A natural theology. Uh, we find mathematics, uh, just abbreviating, uh, we have natural philosophy, like physics. And these are branches of theoretical uh, uh, theoretical, or speculative truth. Truth that is for its own sake and makes no reference to action. Whereas at the bottom of her garments, we find the, the, uh, the insignia pi, which refers to practical philosophy and refers to ethics, politics, and economics. Now, there's a propedeutic even to this wisdom, okay, uh, which are called the liberal arts. And Boethius wrote extensively about all of the liberal arts. The, the, the quadrivium and the trivium, I don't know if you've ever heard of those. 
But he said, even before you start doing philosophy, okay, uh, you can pursue truth by way of grammar, rhetoric, logic, is the trivium. And the quadrivium would be arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Uh, and that knowledge uh, is a propedeutic, prepares you for higher philosophical knowledge, which ultimately leads you to a natural theology, a study about what can be known about God by way of reason. Okay, and so here, this is philosophy. All these are different branches of philosophy, okay? And, and, they're, they're, and this articulation is supposed to communicate this division uh, by way of personifying philosopher, uh, philosophy in this particular way. Now, there's more that can be said there, but, but we'll go on. You know, these, these, these branches communicate the knowledge of the higher things to know God is truth. There's a ladder that connects speculative philosophy from practical philosophy. Okay? And so, to know about God helps you to act rightly. Okay, so this is all practical. Uh, prac, uh, practical philosophy. Sorry, there's a C in there. Snuck in. Okay, so, so there we have it. Now, let's see how she responds to these muse of poetry and, and ultimately of fortune. Okay. <clears throat> Who she demanded, her piercing eyes alight with fire, has allowed these hysterical sluts to approach this sick man's bedside. Lady Philosophy is not mincing words here. You know. They have no medicine to ease his pains, only sweetened poisons to make them worse. They are the very creatures who slay the rich in fruitful harvest of reason with the barren thorns of passion. They habituate men to their sickness of mind instead of curing them. And then she calls upon her muses now to help cure him. Okay, and she does so by playing a certain kind of music that will encourage him, and by speaking, to exit his state of melancholy, of feeling sorry for himself, and to return to himself, where he'll find the truths that he once knew and how they can ultimately bring him out of the despair that he is wallowing in. And so she begins with this verse. And this is only part of it. So sinks the mind in deep despair, and sight grown dim, when storms of life inflate the weight of earthly care. The mind forgets its inward light, and turns in trust to the dark without. Now here, of course, there's so many wonderful things we can say about this. I'm sure you all have very you know, profound reflections as well. But part of what she's insinuating here is as follows. That it's due to his own attachment to transitory things, his own office, his fame to some extent, that this is part of the reason why he has fallen into this wretched state. And she's calling for him to return to the truths he once knew and affirmed. Because unlike those temporal goods which can change, and this is where we get the wheel of fortune, you know, fortune changes, and all of a sudden, you know, those things we're clinging to have abandoned us. Well, she's saying they're right to abandon us, as we'll see, because 
all transitory goods, their very nature is to be mutable and to abandon you. They are changing goods. And so these goods are only being faithful to their identity when they come and go. But only other goods, certain goods of the mind and of the soul, do not change and endure. And it's to those that you need to cling to for your happiness. Okay? And this is what she alludes to in the next line. It's only amnesia. Okay? Uh, A disease of deluded minds. And so here is her admonition to him to return to himself. And this is beautiful. It is hardly surprising if we are driven by the blasts of storms when our chief aim on the sea of life is to displease wicked men. This is philosophy talking. Okay. And though their numbers are great, we can afford to despise them because they have no one to lead them and are carried along only by ignorance, which distracts them at random, first one way, then another. When their forces attack us in superior numbers, our general conducts a tactical withdrawal. You can see Christ as the general here. Of his forces to a strong point. And they are left to encumber themselves with useless plunder, safe from their furious activity on our ramparts above, we can smile at their efforts to collect all the most useless booty. Our citadel cannot fall to the assaults of folly. And this is a beautiful passage, because what she's saying is that the Christian is never vulnerable. In this sense, all that really matters can never be taken away. The only things that can be taken away are those goods that are themselves fleeting. But what cannot be taken away are those goods that last. In other words, our virtue can never be taken from us. And this is the strength that that allowed the martyrs to say, you may take my body, you can burn my body, you can take my possessions, but you can never force my will to do evil. Man is always free, and his desire to do good can never be taken from him. And in his desire to do good, okay, and in his doing good, we have, as we'll discover, man's highest happiness. And so we'll find in the course of things how this is a kind of happiness and a kind of peace that can never be uprooted from the soul. And, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful theme. I, I think I first encountered this. Actually, I, I'm a convert to Catholicism. Uh, and when, but when I encountered this truth in secular literature, when I was uh, reading Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin in eighth grade, There's this Uncle Tom character who's kind of looked at in a pejorative light, but he's actually a believer, and he said the same thing. He realized that the truths that he knew could not be taken from him, the truths that he encountered in the scriptures, the truth about who he is and what he's made for can never be taken from him. His freedom, his desire to do good can never be taken from him. All that could be taken is his body, but even that is destined to corrupt anyway. But all the greatest gifts of man belong by right to himself and cannot be uprooted 
from his soul unless he uproots himself. And this is a profound line in, in, we'll see in book 1, chapter 5. However, okay, you, it is not simply a case of you having been banished far from your home. You have wandered away yourself. Or, if you prefer to be thought of as having been banished, it is you yourself that have been the instrument of it. You seem to have forgotten the oldest law of your community, that any man who has chosen to make his dwelling there has the sacred right never to be banished. So there could be no fear of exile for any man within its walls and moat. On the other hand, if anyone stops wanting to live there, he automatically stops deserving it. Okay, does this sound like oh, there's, there's a popular adage, you know, the doors to hell are locked from the inside? You know, I mean, what's been going on here? What's, what's going on is that the only one that can corrupt or take away what is most privileged in man is himself. By violating the moral law, man separates himself from the path that leads to God, who is his, his ultimate happiness okay, and, and fulfillment. And only that is what man has to fear, is leaving the path that leads to God. But you know what? No one can take you off that path except yourself. If you freely divest yourself of the privilege of walking the narrow road back to God. And this is the point she makes at the very onset of this work. Now, I'm going to sum up a, a, a few more of, of, uh, of what transpires from here. And I'd like you to, you know, when you, I, hope, I hope you come back next week. Because we, we, we still haven't dealt with the heart of, of, of the, the higher questions. You know, part of his health will be contingent upon him resolving those questions. You know, where is our happiness? You know, what is our happiness? And where do we find it? And then, if it's in a good God, how come there is evil? And if, if God, you know, knows what we're going to do, how are we free? All of these questions we'll see later on. But here, we find with the rest of, of uh, the, the, these words here, okay, and these quotes that you'll find in, in this particular handout, the movement of Boethius from sickness to health, as Lady Philosophy slowly shows him the errant ways of his thinking. And by doing so, she allows him to find the peace and tranquility that can only come from a mind that knows the truth and is wise and is able to walk in the paths of wisdom. Okay? And so she points out these wonderful things, these wonderful truths, that in all the things of this world, okay, there is something lacking. But in all these good things, they, they must receive their goodness from some origin. If something is better than something else, there must be a best. If you think about it, if, if there are things that are better than other things, how can you compare two things unless there is a standard? 
unless there is something that is the best. And with this kind of reasoning, she ends up showing that all temporal good things come from goodness itself, which is unchanging, and which gives man his happiness. And I'll finish with this little story, okay, to connect a little bit better, maybe, with the females, uh, especially, in, in the audience here. Uh, I'm going to make a reference to Pride and Prejudice of Jane Austen. Okay? Now, uh, I don't know if you guys remember the scene towards the end of, of this, great, this great work by Jane Austen, uh, but Lizzie is, uh, oh, no, Jane. Jane just got engaged, and she's just blubbering on about the excitement she experiences, and she says, I, 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 how I wish that all my sisters could enjoy just be a, but an ounce of, the, of the, the joy I'm now experiencing this. And I don't know if you remember, but Lizzie's the philosopher. And, and how does she respond? She says, until I have your goodness, I can never have your happiness. And here she said something that is perennial and something we'll discover in Boethius. If you want happiness, the happiness is proportional to goodness. The better you are, the happier you will be. And you can't get happiness directly except by doing good. It's a fruit of good activity. And it follows that misery will be proportional with, obviously, making bad choices. But this doesn't seem necessarily to be the case in our experience. And so hopefully you'll return next time to see how Boethius claims that that is in fact the reality and how then ultimately God will be posited as the, both the origin and end of man, <clears throat> source of happiness, which will then allow him to reconcile those problems that I mentioned. But if we could finish with something, let's, let's finish with a prayer. Now this is a prayer of Boethius as he is on the cusp of, if you will, the supernatural, when he's trying to discover God himself and God's existence, he feels that his rational capacities are insufficient. And so he implores God to give him wisdom via a kind of infused grace, much like the gift of the, gift of the Holy Spirit that is wisdom. And so he prays that he might have the wisdom to see this higher truth. And so let's look at, it's, it's, the, it's the third page. Actually, the last page. I'm sorry, the fourth. And we'll conclude with this. I'll stay for some questions. And, and then next time, what we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of, uh, again, summarize this, this amazing work. Okay? and answer some of those questions that I posited at the beginning of the lecture, and hopefully we'll do all that. Now, in the meantime, hopefully you'll also maybe even pick up a copy of this. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's so readable. In fact, people are just beginning to study philosophy. I always recommend it. I, I think it's something that could be read in a week, and I think you get even more out of the next lecture if between now and then you pick up a copy and read it. I challenge you. But let's finish with this prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Grant, Father, that our minds thy august seat may scan. 
Grant us the sight of true good source, and grant us light, that we may fix on thee our mind's unblinded eye. Disperse the clouds of earthly matter's cloying weight. Shine out in all thy glory, for thou art rest and peace to those who worship thee. To see thee is our end, who art our source and maker, Lord and path and goal. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for your time. Thank yeah, you, Mark. Yeah, We're always just scratching the surface. So. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.